Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, 3CR's breakfast show on Saturday. And uh, it's uh, a nice chilly morning. Uh, hopefully you're all rugged up and uh, getting ready for your bit of politics with your Wheaties. Uh, today we're going to kick off with a few bits and pieces about activism. Uh, I was uh, listening to uh, an ICANN webinar, that's International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, and you might have heard that the potential new uh, British Prime Minister sh- says that... Uh, She's the foreign minister at the moment, uh, is saying things like, uh, yes, we should uh, nuke uh, Russia, uh, despite the uh, horrendous outcomes of uh, letting off a nuclear attack. It's uh, crazy, crazy conversations, but of course there's ongoing challenges against uh, the use of nuclear power as well as... uh, nuclear weapons, but there's a whole uh, gamut of people who are just uh, crazy people in this world. And uh, at this particular event, there was a fantastic uh, uh, piece put together by um, Valerie Joy, who is from uh, WILP, which is Women's International League of Peace and Freedom. And uh, her report is a classic... uh, uh, activist campaign step by step towards certain change in Queensland Council's uh, public statements around nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And I thought it was a really great way of starting the program, listening to how a person and her group have negotiated what seems to be an intractable negative uh, Queensland local councils and nuclear statements against them. Uh, So we'll start that off uh, as the way the program will start. Very positive stuff. Um, We're going to follow up with another form of activism, which was uh, um, an event outside the... uh, Home Affairs Department on Wednesday. This was uh, Refugees Action Collective and uh, they're calling for uh, permanent um, visas for uh, refugees. Uh, 
Uh, and uh, we're going to hear from a United Workers Union lawyer, a refugee, and Sue Bolton. Uh, we're going to follow that up with a small report about Sri Lanka. Uh, this is the week that was. And then Don Sutherland is going to return and he's going to chat to us a little bit about the upcoming job summit and superannuation, that thing that's lurking in the wings, a massive amount of money that's been accumulated over time and all the greedy ones want to put their fingers all over it. This is what was uh, in the last LNP government's uh, agenda was to remove any union connection to superannuation on any of the boards, etc., etc., which is a real slap in the face considering it was the union movement that actually advocated for the superannuation at all as a way of... Uh, you know, there's lots of arguments about superannuation as being a, a way of uh, sidelining uh, the pension, but uh, it was definitely something to do with uh, the welfare of workers in their older age. So, yes, that's the program today. All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers and all. So it went you're with Annie on 3CR Saturday Breakfast, Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, as I said, we'll give the floor to Valerie Joy from Wilf. A lot of people know Valerie Joy uh, of Wilf uh, up in Queensland to report back on uh, a really exciting recent success uh, and an interesting story at that. Um, over to you, Valerie. Hi, everybody. Lovely to see you all. I became involved with the campaign as a member of WILF, and soon after I joined, the Queensland local government elections took place, and Jamila from ICANN invited us to begin lobbying Queensland councils to support the TPNW, the Treaty for Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. She gave us printed material to use, which included the basis of a motion for discussion at a council meeting. Now, there are 77 councils in Queensland, and until recently, we were the only state in Australia that had no councils signed up to the Cities and Towns Appeal. Um, there was a team of us keen to get started, and we divided the number of Queensland councils between us, uh, about eight of us uh, wrote to about nine councils each. So the plan was to write and to follow up with an email and then saying that we would call the mayor the following week. It was a great plan, but none of us received any answers. And when we were, when, when we called, we were never put through to anybody, to an elected member. In fact, the one council where I had personal 
connections, the mayor of that council asked my relative to ask me to stop count contacting them. So of course, I respected that. But she gave me some very interesting um, thoughts. She told me that the mayor of um, Mount Isa was newly elected and might be receptive to further inquiries. So 2020, there was the interstate lockdown um, and another WILF member, Del Cudahy and I made plans to travel to Mount Isa and to visit other councils in rural Queensland as well. <coughs> Starting in Townsville, which is a military city, we had a nil response from the mayor there and subsequent correspondents told us clearly to stop contacting them. The next was Flindershire, based in Hewenden, where the mayor was still at the Queen's Pachin organised for the CEO and another staff member to see us. They were very encouraging and wrote a report to the council, but it didn't proceed. In Mount Isa, uh, we spent time in the local library reading about local organisations likely to provide support. But our team back at home, and this is what I want to emphasise, we were a team all the time. And we meet all the time. We meet every fortnight. So we become very close. Um, the team back at home had organised for the um, local newspaper to interview us. And so there was something about us by the time we got to see the mayor. We also had organised for us an interview with ABC local radio. Um, and we even dropped in on the local member, Warren Inch, but we didn't see him, we saw his PA. Um, so the mayor was very gracious and she gave us a good 60 minutes and then introduced us to the general manager. She said, I believe and support you, but there are six other councillors that I have to get on side. She also suggested we visit the Catholic priest, who proved to be a very staunch ally. Her last remark was, why don't you do a 15-minute virtual presentation to the council? That had not occurred to us to ask for this, but this became our next strategy. We then visited Winton Council and spoke with the mayor and deputy mayor, who were quite encouraging, but there was no follow-up. We had written to the local paper about our upcoming visit and sent a copy to the mayor. Our last visit was to Longreach and my, did we have a knockback there. I actually got to speak on the phone with the general manager, but there was no way he or any elected member would see us. Back home, we planned our 15 minute presentation to Mount Isa, starting with a message from the Mayor of Fremantle, who was then the Chair of Mayors for Peace, followed by a well-argued case by Marianne Hansen. A Mount Isa staff member subsequently wrote a report to the Council summarising our points, but it still didn't go to a vote then. The Mayor mentioned to the aforementioned Catholic priest 
But when she moved the motion a couple of months later, she didn't think she would get a seconder. However, the motion passed to support the TPNW six, four, and one against. A few months later, we took Alfie, that's the Nobel Prize, to back to Mount, to Mount Isa and put on a reception for the council and the community at the Bucks Club. The next was the Australian Local Government Conference, the 20th to 23rd of June, 2021 in Canberra. And Del and I attended together with Jem and Jamila. We were still putting our stall together when many elected reps came up to talk with us. And this was indeed different from the usual knockbacks. Um, seven different councils had proposed a motion for the Monday afternoon session that the ALGA, Australian Local Government Association, supports uh, councils in supporting the TPNW and it passed unanimously in many cheers. Um, the following day, opposition leader Anthony Albanese spoke at the conference and he said, when Labor is in government, Australia will sign the TPNW. More cheers. So back in Brisbane, our relation died with none of the councils we recontacted being willing to see us. The mayor's PAs were very protective of their bosses. We steadily wrote to Brisbane councillors, requested interviews, which were generally declined, or in some cases they referred them to Councillor Fiona Cunningham, who had carriage of this um, nuclear-free stuff. Um, but it was like putting our arguments into thin air. And we sent them all Christmas cards in 2021. I discovered that the Lord Mayor of Brisbane is the chairman of the Asia Pacific Cities Summit, which meets annually in Brisbane. And I wrote to him along the lines that the Pacific nations have suffered greatly from uh, nuclear fallout and most have signed the TPNW. I suggest they would appreciate Brisbane City Council giving support to the TPNW. His reply was that Brisbane has been a nuclear free zone for some time and did not consider any further action necessary. Um, just a note that our lobby group was alerting council that all the signs that said uh, Brisbane was a nuclear free zone had fallen down decades ago. Next was the federal election and the surprise upsurge of the green vote in Brisbane and generally in Queensland. So my take on this is that the Conservative Brisbane City Council, who face in themselves face elections in 2023, got scared that many would lose their seats to the Greens. The council agreed that Wilf could make a five minute presentation to the council. And it was fortunate this was delayed until after the election. In the weeks leading up to the 31st of May, Marianne, Chris Henderson and others had face-to-face -face meetings with their local councillors. On the day, Marianne gave a succinct and clear message to the council with about 12 of us sitting in the visitors gallery. And to our absolute amazement, it was passed without going to a vote. 
So now we are recommencing our campaign to firstly approach adjacent councils to Brisbane with a new and more confident style of letter and a request to make face-to-face -face presentations to those councils. And secondly, to again write to all other Queensland councils, inviting them to support the TPNW. Thank you very much for your attention and good luck to you all. You're listening to 855 AM. The Seoul Masmi Centre for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. Indigenous people in Australia in the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is a certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning, that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane, and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. You're with Annie on 3CR Breakfast, uh, Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we're going to a different form of activism. We're going to the uh, Refugee Action Collective outside the uh, uh, Home Affairs Department on Wednesday. Uh, it's at the top of uh, Lonsdale Street in Clawson's Place. It was raining, so the atmospheric noises that you hear around the voices, it's rain, but there were people there and they, they, were, they were cross. So um, we finally uh, got um, our first speaker of today, who is our third speaker now. <laughs> so Samati Verma uh, from the Migration and Refugee uh, from the United Workers Union. She's a migration and refugee lawyer, and she will speak now. Thanks everybody. Thanks very much for having me. Um, my name is Samati. Before I start, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that this is uh, stolen land that we're standing on. And this land always was and forever will be the unceded and sovereign land of the Wurundjeri people. Um, uh, I'd also like to say that the, the type of things that we're concerned with today when we talk about bordering practices, all of these techniques, detainment, curtailment, incarceration, these techniques were practiced and refined by the colonial state in relation to 
First Nations peoples first. The companies that run the detention centres that hold our friends and comrades captive are places that are funded primarily to hold First Nations people captive and incarcerated in record numbers. These struggles are one struggle, they're not different struggles. So I'd like to say that first and foremost. So what, what can be said? Uh, Australia has one of the most punitive, most selective migration regimes in the entire world, the centrepiece of which is mandatory immigration detention. The only country in the world that practices mandatory, without question, immigration detention. And that is not just a sideline feature uh, of the migration landscape, it's the threat that hangs over everyone cares. So in the meantime, Australia has created any number of different categories, temporary, permanent visas, bridging visas, undocumented status, all of these things. Closer? Sorry, I don't know how much you heard. Australia has created any number of visa categories. Temporary, permanent, bridging, plenty of people with undocumented visa status. Record number of people in, in immigration detention, the highest ever in recorded history. And the purpose of that proliferation is to teach us that we don't have things in common. It's to teach us that everyone has a different visa status, everyone's struggle is different, whereas in reality, these are all part of the same system. Whatever the subclass is, whatever the label is, whatever the number is, it is part and parcel of the way that this system functions and operates. It functions and operates to divide us, to pit us against each other, to make us work in certain places under certain conditions. That is the very purpose. So this is the colonial state doing what it does and has always done, which is to divide us and to conquer us through those means. Um, the, the conditions, I work for a union, so I work for the United Workers Union. So justice for people who are seeking asylum, justice for migrants, is not union business in a sort of um, compassionate way or a sideline way. It's union business because the conditions under which people are forced to live and work are union business because people's, the visas that they hold dictate the way that they come to the country, dictate the conditions under which they live, under which they work, under which they toil and can bring their families. This is union business. So the conditions in which people flee their countries, if it's from persecution, if it's from colonialism, if it's from environmental degradation, all of this is union business. It's union business to stand in solidarity with people as they flee in order to make their lives better um, for whatever reason, for whatever reason that may be. And the time has come now for this endless proliferation of suffering that is taking place under the aegis of the migration regime, whether it is a Labour government, whether it is a Liberal government, the political party really hasn't mattered for many, many years. It's time for it to end and it's time for people to have stability and citizenship now, immediately. It's time for detention centres to be closed immediately. It's time to abolish mandatory detention forever not to impose a time limit on it for 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, even a day of detention is, is too much and it's time for it to end and that is union business. Thank you so much. Um, I'd like to let you guys know that uh, we've got a next event coming up uh, next week on the Thursday the 1st of September. Uh, this will be um, at Andrew Giles' office uh, in Mill Park. So everybody who wants to come there, um, it's from 12 till 1, is it? Yeah, from 12 till 1. So in Mill Park, uh, Andrew Giles' office, um, 1st of September on Thursday. So join us if you can. Um, we've got a few people from the open mic, but before that we've got a last speaker. Uh, we've got uh, Reza Moussafi. 
Uh, I guess it's a refugee uh, who came from Iran, um, was brought from Christmas Island to Manus Island, then under the Medifac law, uh, was brought on shore, first stayed in Brisbane, then stayed in Adelaide, then was brought to a park hotel here in Melbourne. He was released in December, uh, and he was living on a bridging visa ever then uh, in Melbourne. He wants to share um, how this has been for him and um, the kind of stresses um, these kind of visa can cause for people. Arrest, uh, welcome. Hello everyone. I have spent nine years of my life and my youth, actually I have my beautiful life, in detention centers, in Australian camps, offshore and onshore. I was nearly seven years in offshore PNG Papua New Guinea, Manus Island, and about two years and onshore. I have been brought to Australia under the Medivac law because of my condition, because of my mental illness. I have been brought for medical treatment, but I didn't receive any medical treatment from the government. The opposite one, I became worse than before I came to Australia. And now it's been eight months since I was released into community. But I don't feel free. Because I don't have any good situation. And I'm living with a lot of stress. Because of my, this visa, this six month visa, I even don't have any job security. Every six months, I lose my job. And again, after renewal, after lots of stress, I said maybe they're not gonna renew my visa. Maybe they send me again to the camp. That's why I got every six months a lot of stress and a lot of mental pressure on me. Actually, I'm living with a lot of stress because of my visa status. I survived nine years in the Australian camp with all kinds of mental pressure. And after nine years, they left me without any support. We didn't deserve all this harassment and torture. Maybe you heard something about the Australian camps, about the detention center, about the Manus Island, but I felt it 
with my blood, with all my body. I was inside the camp. I endured nine years of mental torture, and now the memory of those tortures hurts me. I know that now some people are saying, why didn't you come back? Because I heard this one. When I say something about the Australian camp, when I say something about the Menos Island, the Australian people actually not believe that the government did to us, did this to us, torturing us. Without any thinking, the people said, why didn't you come back? And I have to say now, it's better to say, first, you have to listen to my story and then tell this one. When I got to Christmas Island, by boat, I thought it was all over because I was looking for a safe place to stay. But it wasn't. Nine years of pain, nine years of torture, nine years of stress. Could you please look at me as a human after all this? Could you please open your arms to the refugees? Could you please show me your real smile? Could you please respect me as a human? I'm really tired. I'm so tired. I don't know how can I say this one. I don't know how can I share this one. I'm so tired of this life. I'm so tired of this situation. Hopefully, this government and this inhuman policy. Thank you. visa or a bridging visa or any of these other shit temporary visas, it basically stuffs with people's minds. Human beings need stability to build their lives rather than being in a constant state of not knowing what the future holds. People need to be able to plan. People have been prevented from seeing their families for 10 years. That is a human rights abuse. It's a human rights abuse. But in addition to that, now at least the Labor Party's got a position of abolishing temporary protection visas, but I don't believe it until they actually abolish them and turn them into permanent visas. So, but that is better than the coalition. But the other part that is not better than the coalition is all the people here who came here under Medivac who are on these terrible bridging visas. Basically what the government is doing is they're people trafficking people around the world. They're looking for other countries to take people who came here on Medivac visas. That is, Australia has destroyed people's lives. It's Australia's responsibility. 
Australia could immediately solve the situation like that and simply announce that everyone gets a permanent visa. And that would immediately, wouldn't resolve all the suffering because people have been, got permanent scars from what's happened over the last 10 years. But it would be a start of people being able to heal and people starting to be able to plan their lives again. This is outrageous. And what the government is doing in Australia is they're leading the world in the wrong direction. They're providing an example for other countries to follow in cruelty because the British government tried to truck refugees off to Rwanda. Um, I think they were stopped, temporarily stopped in their tracks. So the Australian government is leading the world in cruelty. There's no need for that, for all of this. Permanent visas now! Permanent visas now! Permanent visas now! Permanent visas now! Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants, including grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Saturday Breakfast on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we're going to now go to Sri Lanka. There was a very interesting um, event from La Trobe uh, talking about uh, La Trobe University, I mean, uh, about Sri Lanka. And uh, this particular uh, piece gives a, a interesting uh, a potted uh, overview of what's been going on, but it also gives us an insight into some rather interesting elements of uh, the present government. And you will be probably aware that uh, this particular government has decided that it's... Uh, going to arrest and put into detention uh, union leaders, uh, union leaders and others, um, to quell uh, public dissent uh, in the streets. Uh, but uh, we get an insight into how this is playing out. Uh, the speaker is, uh, I'll probably say this completely wrongly, so Pakaya Sosthi Saravanamutu. Yeah, that's probably just a terrible, terrible version of this poor fellow's name. But he's not a poor fellow. He's a very succinct, clear speaker. So let's hear what he's got to say. Well, the Sri Lankan crisis is the most dire crisis that Sri Lanka has faced in its almost 75 years of independence. I would refer to the crisis as an acute crisis of governance, which has the political dimension, 
as well as the economic dimension. This crisis is not one of recent vintage in that it is an accumulation of bad governance since independence, which has been brought to a crescendo, if you like, by the Rajpaksas because of their lack of capacity to govern, their corruption, mismanagement, and bad decision-making. The problem is, is that Sri Lankan governments have treated their citizens as voters and made to them promises which they could not fulfill. As a consequence, we have got ourselves into greater and greater debt. We have a public service of 1.5 million people for a population of almost 22 million. We have subsidized everything from health, education to electricity. We have also state-owned enterprises which are making losses of millions by the day. All of this was brought to a head when former President Gautambe Rajapaksan took over as president in November 2019. And one of the first things that he did was to cut the tax base. And as a consequence, the Treasury lost something like six to eight hundred billion rupees. In addition to that, he also decided to move towards organic fertilizer for agriculture overnight. The decision in itself was a good one, but you could not do it overnight. And as a consequence, agriculture has been devastatingly affected. And as a consequence, we also have the failure of the food crops and acute food shortage as well. The third thing that he did was he obstinately refused to go to the International Monetary Fund as the international lender of last resort when people warned about the impending crisis gathering storm, as it were. We dipped into, not quite dipped into, we dug into our foreign exchange reserves. And as a consequence, today, we don't have any foreign exchange reserves. We paid off our international sovereign bondholders, as opposed to keeping those foreign exchange reserves to spend on imports for essential items. As a consequence of which, we have a serious fuel shortage, cooking gas, drugs, and food. Transport costs have spiraled. Inflation is out of control. And the exchange rate has nosedived. Gotabe Rajpaksa was essentially not a politician. He was a military man who was the Secretary of Defense under his brother Mahinda Rajpaksa when the war was won in 2009. So he had no empathy, if you like, for the concerns of the people. He had a technocratic bent of mind. And as a consequence, he isolated himself in the presidency. He therefore gave rise to the popular demonstration against 
the Rajapaksas as a family and against the corruption and the looting of the treasury that had happened with Mahinda Rajapaksa, his elder brother, but had continued in his three years of the presidency as well. Now, the Argalea, or the struggle, as we called the demonstrations, are interesting because they don't have a single leadership. They are a conglomeration of various groups, some with political affiliation from the left to the right, others community groups, who all came together with one single demand. And that was that Gotabe Rajapaksa should go home. Gotha go was the cry. In addition to that, they came out with the argument that the 225 members of parliament representing the political order, that they too were corrupt and therefore they should go home as well. Now, they managed to get Mahinda Rajapaksa out. They managed to get Gotabe Rajapaksa out. And in that sense, their initial demands have succeeded except, of course, the 225 members of parliament. In 2019, Gautabe Rajpaksa won the presidency by 6.9 million votes. In August 2020, at a general election, his party, the SLPP, or the Sri Lanka Podujana Peramuna, won almost a two-thirds majority in parliament. Those two mandates, the argument goes, have been lost. And therefore, whilst Parliament might be the legal entity and following the constitutional processes in the current context might be legal, they lack legitimacy. So there is therefore that tussle between legality and legitimacy. The Constitution says that the President can dissolve Parliament two and a half years before it fulfills its full term. So therefore, next year, February, March, the president can dissolve parliament. In the meantime, parliament can vote by a two-thirds majority to request the president to dissolve parliament. Now, both of these things are very unlikely to happen because the SLPP majority will not come back will not come back into parliament. And as far as Mr. Vikramasinghe, the current president, is concerned, he would want to see the economy showing very definite signs of coming out of the dire crisis that it is in. Mr. Vikramasinghe has been prime minister for six times. He has never won the presidency. When Gotha Biraj Paksa was kicked out and fled the country, Rania Vikramasinghe became president because the constitutional provisions are that when the president leaves office in midterm, the prime minister becomes president for a period of 30 days, during which parliament selects one of their own to serve out the unexpired years of that term. Rania Vikramasinghe is in parliament in a rather odd way. At the elections in August 2020, his party was badly defeated. They did not win a seat. But the Sri Lankan electoral system provides bonus seats 
on the PR list, two parties, and the United National Party, which is Ranil Vikramasinghe's party, was granted one seat. Ten months into Parliament, they nominated Ranil Vikramasinghe to that seat. So he is president without support of his party in Parliament because they only have one member in Parliament. Now, the issue that faces Ranil Vikramasinghe, of course, is on the immediate economic front. The getting of the bridging finance to see us through the period before we sign up the staff level agreement with the IMF and we go to the proper debt restructuring agreement with them. We have been assisted by India, who has given us something like 4 billion US dollars. We've been assisted by the US, by China to a certain extent, by other friendly countries to tide us over the period. We need a lot more to get back to any sense of normalcy. Vikramasinghe says he's focusing on the economy, but the arguments of the Aragalaya were of regime change, Gotha go home, get the Rajpaksas out, get them to return the money that they stole. Regime change to facilitate systemic change. That is the argument of a new constitution, the abolition of the executive presidency where all power is concentrated in that office, in the hands of a single man or woman, and other liberal reforms to the electoral system and the system of governance. Mr. Vikramasinghe seems to be acknowledging it, but at the same time, he's not focusing on it. He has said that he will focus entirely on the economy and the opposition parties say that they will support the government for whatever it does on the economy. On the political front, though, and this is key, they will not join government because they say the government must come out with a guideline or a timetable by which the executive presidency will be abolished and also give a definite date for when the next general election is going to be neither of which Mr. Vikramasinghe seems interested in. But more to the point, on the human rights front, on the civil and political rights front, he has launched a major counterattack against the Argalaya or the struggle. Mr. Vikramasinghe wants to identify a good Argalaya and a bad Argalaya. The good Argalaya was the one that initially came out and asked for Gota to go, it was flat. It didn't have a leadership as such. There were various groups that were involved. It was very non-sexist, non-ageist. They looked up, they you know, respected LGBTQI rights. There was no ethnic or religious or political differentiation or discrimination. It was almost a vision of what Sri Lanka should be like. But as it has gone on, and as it's the state has used violence against it. The more politically conscious and oriented factions of the Aragala have come to the fore. They are the ones who took over 
the presidential secretariat, the president's residence, the prime minister's residence, the prime ministerial secretariat, and they even threatened to march against parliament. But they did not really use violence. Mr. Vikramasinghe has come out against them and said that they are fascists, that they are terrorists. He's used the draconian Prevention of Terrorism Act to take in quite a few of those leaders. And what bewilders some people, indeed, including myself, is why is he doing this when in another 12 days or 15 days' time, the UN Human Rights Council will be meeting in Geneva and there is a resolution on Sri Lanka that will be brought in in this session. Surely he realizes that the Western countries who are generally perceived to be supportive of him are going to come up with serious language and condemnation of the use of this draconian act. When he was in government and prime minister within 2015 to 2019, there was a promise that there would be a moratorium on the use of the PTA. In Sri Lanka, we have many other laws that can deal with supposed violations of law and order and the public peace. We have the Public Security Ordinance, we have the ICCPR Act, we have the Penal Code, all of that. But he has chosen to use the Prevention of Terrorism Act. Now, the problem here is this, is that by doing that, he's trying to change the narrative, to say that there are people who want to take over the state. The counter-argument is that, look, Mr. Vikramasinghe wants to send out a message to the Sri Lanka People's Party supporters who made him president that he will look after them. He will provide for their security. Some 70-odd houses of theirs have been burnt that he will take care of them, and that he will act tough in a way that Gotabe Rajapaksa surprisingly did not. Yeah. So his ability to maintain law and order compromises his position as the great reconciler who is going to bring the country together to address the economic problems that we face. What Sri Lanka needs at the moment, I would argue, is a government that is trusted by its people, who they have confidence in, who will communicate to them and take them along with them. Because as the president says, and as a number of us believe, it will probably get worse before it gets better. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. A weak solidarity, Breggy team listener, when, as the excitement builds leading into this week's Accord Mark II, caring employers are fighting economy-destroying proposals from the evil unions like sector-wide bargaining, the right to strike, and worse, pay rises, with the poor caring employers pointing out that the biggest barrier to workers getting a pay rise is a pay rise. 
clearly and obviously, if workers want a pay rise, the last thing they need is a pay rise. Our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group spoke for the sundry caring employers and their good, good unions like the Chambers of Profits. Sector-wide bargaining would return us to the 1970s, they pointed out, back to the dark days before former Socialist Party big supremo nuclear hawk himself and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul, reformed the economy to ensure workers did not receive a pay rise and the public purse picked up their caring employers' responsibilities, as it should and evil unions became irrelevant. The glory days caring employers keep telling the Socialist Party it must relive. The only thing we'd agree to about the dark days of the 70s would be pay levels remaining at 70s pay levels. <laughs> they joked, displaying caring employers' side-splitting sense of humour. Then again, it mightn't have been a joke, because relatively they, they are lower. No, no, it was a joke, a very, very funny joke, because we all know how concerned caring employers are about slow wages growth, how much sleep they lose worrying about it, and showing their greatest desire is lazy avaricious workers should receive a pay rise, while knowing a pay rise is not the way to get a pay rise. Great supermarket calls for profit supremo Stephen Kane, the workers, said... Only fixing the enterprise bargaining system and simplifying awards would achieve caring employers' greatest wish. See, what better way for checkout workers, for instance, to get huge wage increases in improved conditions than sitting down one-on-one -on -one with Stephen and negotiating on equal terms? With simplified rules like getting rid of the better-off-overall test, give boot the boot. Because Stephen and Innes and caring employers know that if workers are going to be better off, which is all the caring employers want, then they must be worse off. And Stephen's generosity also runs to the customers enjoying the fabulous inflationary prices on his shelves. As farmers tell us, they have been forced to cut their prices in order to flog their produce to cause cause the profits and Woolworths trillions and we can be certain those cuts will be reflected in their prices because ripping off their suppliers and their customers and their workers would be the last thing the great supermarkets would want to do. And then the unkindest cut of all. The small business profits organisations, True Blue Aussie, came out and said they would consider sector-wide bargaining in return for simplified awards, leaving poor Innes and Stephen and the big caring big employers gasping for air. Oh yes, we can see Accord Mark II concluding with all caring employers and the evil unions marching arm in arm into the stock exchange, taking true capitalism into a united future. The airline which used to be our airline, Supremo Alan Joystick, apologised for long delays and massive inconvenience, blaming a chronic staff shortage as the big problem. Uh, is that the thousands of workers you've sacked, Owen? Oh, sorry, I sadly had to let go. Obviously not, because they're not there anymore. No, the sadly had to be let go were had to be let go for efficiency. So what's the current problem? Uh, inefficiency. That's it. Now it's also due to unrealistic expectations of customers who think they can just come to the airport and catch a plane. Nonetheless, generous, generous Owen offered frequent flyers a few little benefits as compensation, which would have worked a treat except 
Within about a minute and a half, the line dedicated to the offer crashed, and the only frequent was the catastrophes befalling the airline that used to be our airline. The few little benefits were useless. With privatisation delivering such efficiency and social benefits, let's hope the government rethinks its declaration that it will not privatise the NBN network when the NBN network is ready to start making a neat little profit. Expressed on behalf of the efficient private sector this week by one of the private sector's journalistic lackeys in the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, who said the government must privatise the NBN when when it starts making a neat little profit, and privatised True Blue Aussie Post and any other government asset turning over a neat little profit. Privatisation should not be a dirty word, he wrote. Selling public assets should be done to enable private sector innovation and efficiency, reduce government debt, introduce new tax-paying corporations and maximise competition to benefit consumers through better services and cheaper prices. Well, the week that was has been saying that for years. We have loved the efficiency and cheaper prices of electricity, gas, airports, and Allen's Airline that used to be our airline is a prime example of efficiency and cheaper fares and collecting billions in corporate welfare. And that important point, new taxpaying corporations. Although, uh, apart from providing lots more income for tax lawyers and tax accountants, making sure they pay no tax, the tax they avoid would be a small percentage of their profits, which, if the asset was still with the bloated, inefficient hands of the public sector, would all go to the public purse. But that, that shows how silly I am, given the capitalist review capitalist lackey is an expert in these things, and who are we to disagree? And Alan Joystick is a prime example of the great benefits of privatisation, like our cheap, 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 efficient power bills. Oh dear, yet again we're in the Saturday Can't Compete department, like Lord Rupert of Wapping Sion Lachlan is suing Crikey over an article Lockie says defamed him was not accurate reporting. Let's repeat that. Lachlan Murdoch is suing another media outlet for defamation for inaccurate reporting he claims over Lockie's role as supremo of that writer-than-right outlet Fox News, nothing but the facts news. Uh, But Lockie, you've argued that our defamation laws were too restrictive, that they limited your capacity to defame. You've always argued for freedom of speech in the media. And I still uphold those cherished democratic values. I uphold the right of news very limited to defame, to say what we like. But but that doesn't give our upstart competition the right to say hurtful things about me. And thankfully, due to our lobbying, the defamation laws have been eased, so we can sue anyone who defames us. As if. Who would believe nothing but the facts news would whip up a right-wing neo-fascist mob? Poor Daddy, who's devoted his life to objective, balanced journalism, was so upset when he heard that. Interesting that, describing what appears in Newsbury Limited as journalism. Still, I reckon Lockie and Lord Rupert should sue former big supremo little Kevin Rod for the workers, who persists with his cruel call for a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission into media concentration.
just because Lord Rupert and Lockie concentrate on bringing us all the news we need to know and don't bring us all the news we don't need to know. Little Kebby dredging up thousands of signatures calling for the commission, showing how thousands of people can be brainwashed. Anathema to Lord Rupert and Lockie. And despite the Socialist Government again iterating it has no intention of inquiring into the Lord Rupert News very limited empire, showing there's obviously no need, particularly when Lord Rupert brings us the big news of the day, just like this Monday, when the front page and pages two and three in his whopping sin were ads for a pay TV show, and then P5, the first right-hand news page, the big, big story of the day. A picky of a young actor looking distressed, telling us she is suffering from something or other happening on her social media. And goodness me, guess what pay TV show she just happens to be in. That was the biggest item in the world that day. So with such responsible and important journalism, what's little Kebby carrying on about? Same satire can't compete department, former whiteboard sports fraud specialist Bridget McConnum C, commenting on her former big supremo Scuttlebin Moore Lash son, a.k.a. Scomo, making himself minister for just everything, said we must ensure integrity in government. OK, let's repeat that one. Former Minister for Sports Rights Bridget McConnum C says we must ensure integrity in government. Satire can't compete. As usual, consistency was the big theme, with Deputy Caring Business Class Party Supremo Susan Lees and Dregs picking up the It Comes Back to Bite You Award of the Week, attacking the socialist decision to inquire into ScoMo's Ministry of Just Everything, pointing out sensibly that they are looking at the past, looking backward, and we must move forward. This is history. Uh, but Susan, when former Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses became Big Supremo, he held a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission into pig bats and the Smash the Evil Union's Commission, including a term of reference investigating then Socialist Party Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition's actions when he was an Evil Union official ten years earlier. Well, correction, an official in a non-Evil Union ten years earlier. You can't compare them. That was essential to expose just how evil the evil unions and the Socialist Party are. That there is no comparison. This is a socialist witch hunt. We would never stoop to a witch hunt. How dare you compare poor Scummo with evil unions and evil socialists? Well, that put us in our place. As Troubler was, he agrees to spend trillions on trained killer helicopters from the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Merchants of Death Industry. A U.S. of trained killer department person said the purchase was vital to the U.S. of national interest. And it won't hurt the interest of their merchants of death either, so money well spent. And it's not like there's other needs in Troubler-Wazzy's national interest, leading up to our, finally, Indigenous disadvantage, which I raised because an academic applied for a research grant and the body which approves these things rejected it with the question, what has Indigenous disadvantage got to do with the national interest? Huh? 
See, satire's just useless today. After the third attempt, by the way, the academic was told next time it would be rejected outright, leading us to, finally, I'm starting to panic about this Indigenous voice to Parliament, which I've learned is wrong in principle, wrong in principle. We'll have something approaching a veto, something approaching a veto. Leave government action more open to legal challenge, more open to legal challenge. Yes, a timely warning from the aforementioned tiny a bit more for the bosses, supported by no less a champion of our first people, another former big supremo, little Johnny Howhart. It would fuel division and have a coercive influence on the government. It really would. And cruelly, cruelly, listener, big supremo Anthony all being oozy counted with... With respect to little Johnny, I don't think overwhelmingly I would think of his government as a model of how to advance reconciliation. How disrespectful, when obviously, thanks to two eminent tribulosies like Tiny and Little Johnny, we should all be afraid, very afraid of an invasion on white civilization, planting an indigenous flag in Botany Bay and laying claim to our country. Good morning. Good morning. Well put, Kevin. And on the line, we've got Don Sutherland. G'day, Don. How are you? Um, I'm wondering how I top Kevin. I know. Um, I know. (laughs) My rather dry uh, discussion sort of pales a bit, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, We're... um, uh, you know, it's funny, before we start talking about the Job Summit and uh, superannuation, I, I just have to tell you that I was walking, uh, I was riding along uh, going down to Carlton and I had to get off the bike and walk around some road workers, or I don't know what they were doing, but they put off the, uh, we couldn't get down the footpath. And they were talking about, they, they were having a big chin wag about uh, get a load of Morrison and his uh uh, six uh, departments, and I thought, ah, it's gone from five to six already. <laughs> well, they would be in the know because they pay a lot more attention to what's going on in the world than many. <laughs> and um, they also, um, uh, despite labels to the contrary, do a lot of talking and thinking about how to get the job done better when they are uh, working in their teams and uh, uh, that which is something a tablet which is which is usually lost on the engineers that um, uh, that supervise them, <laughs> and so that's a nice little story because it sort of uh, segues into at least one or two of the things we're going to talk about in the next uh, quarter of an hour, twenty minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, what's your uh, uh, take on this uh, job summit, which is now being called the um, Accord Mark Two or something? Yes, well, um, it's definitely not the Accord Mark II. I don't know who's saying that, but that's not right. Um, uh, the first Accord was an agreement between the ACTU and a potential Labor government, uh, and it later led to a thing called the National Economic Summit, which was Hawke's version of bringing everyone together and seeking common solutions. Uh and that produced a statement, which wasn't a tripartite statement, uh, that Hawke read out as a summary of, of that particular summit. And that was quite different to what went on with the, uh, uh, what, what, the what was the content of the accord. So the, whoever said that's wrong. Um, the, uh, 
However, the, what it does is lead us into, uh, I think, some general comments that are necessary because of uh, this thing. It is called the Jobs and Skills Summit, and it is a la 1983, all about bringing people together and finding a solution in common. And there is a particular point to that out that we can work out from previous experience. Uh, and it is it, this time it is intended to produce a white paper. And white papers in terms of parliamentary governance are very important documents. Uh, one of the most important ones in our history was the full employment white paper of the Chifley government immediately after the Second World War. However, this, to the extent that this will be one of the very first in which government does not um, actually uh, write the thing, uh, but it is apparently going to be a product of whatever consensus comes out. So we need to understand what sort of is going on in in a more general sense. Uh, I've been lucky to uh, be active in the union movement over, this is the fourth, national summit of some importance uh, since I've been active in the union movement. The first thing you can say about all of them, and this one included, is that they are thoroughly elitist. They may be tri tripartite, that is, pulling in people from government, parliament, uh, from the employers uh, uh, and from the union movement, and then plus others from social welfare, and I'm pretty certain from the banking industry this time for reasons we'll come to. So the firstly, they're very elitist and whatever is going on there is going to produce something that is going to continue to be done to the working class. That is the majority of the population. Not something that the you know, that the working class through their unions or other means, community activity and so on, can actually grab hold of and uh, do for themselves. Um the second thing is that is that they're they're all labour initiatives. These four, um, uh, 1983-1985's tax summit, the uh, the 2007 to 2009 tripartite process for the Fair Work Act was a different structure. They didn't use a summit, but they did use people who are elitist in the summiteer type realm to construct the Fair Work Act. Uh, which, of course, ended up being very different to what we had fought for in the Your Rights at Work campaign that actually got the Labor government elected, and then this one. So the second thing is to say about all, all of the first three is they dilute and weaken the commitments or the program that Labor makes to the people when they go to the election. Uh, so they go to the election. Now, this, on this particular occasion, this year, the election, uh, the Labor government went to the election with a very modest program, including on workers' rights and so on. Perhaps, arguably, the most advanced thinking was around skills formation and some of the things it was trying to do for the workforce in aged care and in uh, childcare in, uh, and may, arguably in nursing, although I think there are some complications there. So the, the, they dilute a program, in this case, that is already modest. And that's because, of course, by bringing the employers in, they, uh, they have to do that because the employers are not going to give up on some of the things they have now 
like the basic architecture of the current Fair Work Act. Um, the, uh, so they're the first two major things about this summit, as much as there has been about the previous three. Yeah, yeah, no, this uh, is important. Uh, key things uh, for workers is the removal of the ability of uh, employers to throw people onto the modern award uh, just because they've created a non-negotiable EBA uh, approach. Uh, yes, yes. And to make sure, uh, from the employer's point of view, the task is to make sure that industrial action rights do not flow from any proposed changes that might emerge that enable some sectors of workers who wish to to go for multi-employer uh, multi-employer agreements, yeah, a patent bargaining award-based changes, or whether they are some other form of multi-employer agreement. So you're right. That's right. That's the employer agenda. And from the point of view of the unions, uh, is, is to reach some sort of arrangement agreement for multi-employer bargaining. But, uh, I haven't yet seen any labour le- union leader talk explicitly about the right to strike attached to that nor make a solid connection to the award system. Yeah, which and, are the two, the two things that are most important to workers in general because it's about writing uh, 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 the imbalance that's been uh, written into the industrial relations at the moment. Uh, the, yes. Yeah, yeah. Wage increases and the standard of living that flow from those to the rest of the working class will not change unless either one of two things happens, and maybe a combination. One is that the legal framework that prevents uh, workers from making wage gains at low employment levels, uh, uh, the legal framework is changed so that there is industrial action rights that trump uh, uh, anything the employers might want that prevents them. Yeah, yeah. And uh, in uh, Stick Together Today... uh, I found the Downer dispute really interesting because it's chiselling. It's a it's a um, it's an employer that is using these systems to in order to chisel little bits of value out of the uh, uh, contract with their workers, rather than just be running a normal process of employment, which seems to be what employers think that they can get away with. Yes, that that sounds to me very much like. Um the experience that uh, the, the personal experience I've had coordinating uh, enterprise bargaining in a national company for a national agreement, uh, and uh, and which um, is on the record it, over uh, you know countless disputes, mm. uh, including uh, escalating since two thousand and seven and nine. But those sort of stuff that um, making concessions in the name of productivity uh, is where you know that was happening in the nineties and. Uh, uh, so the employers are highly skilled at it now, and they have a team of um, lawyers and uh, very knowledgeable uh, uh, non-lawyer industrial uh, relations experts who provide advice on how to screw things out of workers in the enterprise bargaining process and, in, if necessary, shift them to uh, out of the agreement but back onto the award or marginally above it. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to the skills because quite clearly that's the uh, 
uh, part that I reckon that the government and employers want to uh, look good in. You know, like the government thinks that it's, it can rectify the poorest state of skills development in Australia that's been caused by the LNP's heavy reliance on visas, etc., etc., uh, and undermining the, uh, uh, in my view, the uh, uh, training of Australians to work. Uh, yes, well, the uh, in fact, it's been um, a terrible alliance, an entirely predictable one, but a terrible alliance between the employers and governments since the mid-1990s to destroy the skills formation uh, the skills formation architecture in Australia, particularly targeting the publicly funded um, TAFE. And TAFE workers have been struggling against that uh, in enor- under enormous difficulties for, um, you know, I would say 25 years probably, the, being really the voice of sanity and all of that because uh, what the employers are now discovering is that their alliance primarily with uh, LNP governments to destroy TAFE and the associated architecture around skills formation has now come back to bite them on the backside. In a oh, surprise, way. surprise. What? Yes, yeah. Idiots. Yes. And the Business Council of Australia uh, have been up to their eyeballs in that. Um, and uh, so uh, this, you're right, this, this, the, the primary mechanism there are going to be two things going on. Some, some things, uh, uh, one aspect of it will be um, the, uh, the reconstruction, if you like, of uh, 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 mecha- mechanisms for skills and training delivery that will be of some benefit for workers, uh, but uh, and they are workers based in Australia already. Um, uh, but I don't think there's going to be... A, well, I'd love to be proven wrong. There are no signs yet there's going to be a major breakthrough out of this summit for, uh, for TAFE. We'll, we will oh, see. Really? Yeah. All uh, right, the OK. The aspect of that is going to be migration. Ah, uh, yes. You see, if, if, if wages um, are going to increase... The level of unemployment must stay low, and and the the legal framework that gives workers industrial action powers, or a new consciousness in the union movement to develop a strategy in defiance of the law when it comes to wages, workers' rights, conditions, and so on. Uh, that's what has to happen. Now, the the but the, the idea is to open the floodgates on skills migration, and I think it's very interesting that on the seven thirty report last night, Sally McManus quite deftly handled that. She did that until three major points actually, but on this one, she said, "Well, the union movement is going to be developing has developed and putting forward a proposal for a ninety one thousand dollar minimum." minimum wage for a skilled migrant worker. And that is intended to uh, prevent uh, the, the opening up of the floodgates for migration uh, to solve the skill shortage problem by um, 
employing uh, uh, migrants, including skilled migrants, on very low wage rates and probably uh, leaving the architecture for wage theft alive and well. Well, Oh, that's really fascinating. From the point of view of the employers. Yeah, yeah. It, it just, it, it, put, uh, it, it makes, uh, they sound like gutter snipes, the uh, employers. The things that they they think is a reasonable approach to uh, running the economy is fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Well, some research I've been doing myself because uh, I'm not really aware of any other economists. Not that I'm an economist. I'm just someone who tries to think about these things on the kitchen table, economists, to the extent I am. But um, the work I've been doing tells me that the... The rate of profit in Australia for the employers is shaky, and there is great variations from being very strong to being quite poor, depending on the industry and inside industries. But you put 100 employers in a room with the Reserve Bank governor as the, as the guest speaker, and the first thing that thing that they are thinking about all the way through is, uh, what is going to be my improved rate of return out of what he is saying? That is the profit I make relative to the investment I put in. And that's all they think about. That's and funny you that should say that because... Uh, that's shaky enough for them to be yeah. really worried and that's why they're being very, uh, becoming very hyperactive now in the context of this summit because they believe that this Labor government will give them things to solve that problem of uh, the rate of profit. Oh, that's interesting because uh, it, that's like a, the old story about a farmer. A farmer looks at a tree and thinks how many fence posts they can get out of it. Um, yes, yes, that's a good. That's a good metaphor. Yeah, yeah. And, and empl- the employers, of course, have not, never. It's never been any different. Uh, I think the the sort of they're limited. They're limited thinkers. Um, they're limited, but they're also, you know, they're not silly, and um, uh, they they do know what they're doing. And it's, I think, the greed thing is true, but it's not. In a sense, uh, there's always going to be a problem with the rate of profit because there are some things that actually go on be almost beyond the control of the employers themselves, but just in the whole way in which the system works. Um, Will some will to some employers, and as I said, uh, the impact is different from one industry to another, and inside industries and so on. But there is a, there is always a constant problem for them about how to maintain their rate of profit relative to competitors. Yeah, so which is the problem of capitalism. They can't control, so they have to go and do the things, the horrible things, from the point of view of workers, that they try to do. Um, and of course, mixed up, and that of course is greed and so on. But uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, before we finish up, um, can I just ask you what you think is, if we look at it from a cynical promotional activity uh, lens, what is this job summit supposed to perform for or for the government? What what are they hoping for? Do you think? Um, well, uh, from the point of view of the government, they've got they they don't they want. Firstly, it it stops the focus from being on their appalling decision to maintain Morrison's stage three tax cuts. 
the discussion from that. And yet the stage three tax cuts and the continuation of that, even though it was an election commitment, so part of their mandate to leave it alone, we know now that the way in which uh, the uh, uh, all sorts of things are going on that make it utterly illogical for any Labor government, even a conservative one like this one, to continue with the stage three tax cuts. But they're determined to do it. So the summit shifts things to be talking about jobs, skills, uh, and, uh, and so on. The second thing is to control the ACTU push for stronger workers' rights around collective bargaining that ought to include not just multi-employer bargaining, but ought to push towards industry and award-based bargaining with collective action rights. I mean, the simple thing to do would be to remove, would be to, and this is just a modest proposal, really, would be to reverse the onus of proof, and that is there is a natural right for workers to exercise industrial action in collective bargaining over any type of dispute. Yeah. And then legally, because we're living in capitalism, you enable employers to uh, have a mechanism whereby they can, you know, well, I think the best type of mechanism would be, well, the employers can apply that there'd be a ballot of the workers um, they employ to as to whether there might be, uh, whether the industrial action should, that they're going, they're, they are using should be withdrawn. I mean, that's a sort of an out there thought, but it's sort of, you know, within the framework of the, the system we're in. So, but that's not going to happen. And so, and, lab, and the Labor government is is dead set to control the push that unions and union members are trying to develop, although it may be in a stunted way that they're doing it. And, uh, and then, of course, the problem then becomes that at some point, workers' consciousness will, be, will develop into acts of defiance mm. against the Fair Work Act as we know it. And Labor needs to be able to... It knows it must manage it if it believes it's going to go into a second and third term of government. Right. The other quick point I make is yeah. that there's, in terms of... Uh, I think right-wing Labor in particular, those that come out of the Paul Keating tradition, are dead set keen to use the Jobs and Skills Summit to enable uh, superannuation to become a major issue and to enable some way in which the Labor government will cooperate with employer demands that bank, the banks, the five big banks, that's four big banks, be able to get their hands more easily on the superannuation, $3.4 trillion in going upwards uh, that there is at the moment. And there's all through the week in the Australian Financial Review, there has been... Oh, listen, listen. Well, no. I, what I want you to do is because uh, we've got hardly any time, and I I want to invite you to come back next week to talk about the superannuation because this is really, really, really important. It's really big, and yeah. it's being done. This is being done to workers and their savings in spades, and uh, it, it reinforces my point about uh, those those two early remarks I made about the elitism and the dilution uh, that goes on in these tripartite exercises uh, and it's a perfect example.
Great. And if people mm. do get access to the Australian Financial Review, the last week has been fascinating, including the way in which the government itself is is pointing towards actually wanting this idea. All right. Well, we're going to talk about this next week, okay? It's a date? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Thanks for All talking the to us. Happy summer tearing. <laughs> uh, and it really is the end of the program. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and, I, and I've dipped into the past for a song I just wanted to hear. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.